One time when I was in uh, Washington, D.C., I visited the National Museum of the Press, which was called, you'll love this, the Newseum. <laughs> Thank you. At least you got one, one thing out of this sermon. All right. And, and there in the Newseum, which sadly is no longer, etched in glass were the names of over 1,800 people who have died trying to report the news. I had no idea. One was uh, Don Bowles. He was an investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. And one day he met with a source who had promised him information about this huge land deal going down that was crooked and that apparently had ties to top Arizona state officials and maybe the mob. So. Don, in the quest for truth, went and met with the source at the, in the, briefly in this hotel, walked back out, got in his 76 Datsun, and the car blew up. And he lost his life. And there, uh, apparently, there had been six sticks of dynamite taped under his car. And there in the museum sat the wreckage of that orange-brown 76 Datsun. I was quite shaken by that. And then I turned, and there was a huge map of the world on the wall, and every country was color-coded by its freedom of the press. And I expected most of the world to be free or relatively free, but actually most of the world was red, meaning not free at all, or orange, very, very limited free expression. In fact, the reality of our world is that most people in the world do not live where it is safe to tell the truth. Even in India today, a large and prosperous nation, every year, three to four journalists are killed. And it is in that kind of world that Jesus begins his work. Tonight's gospel just sets it up very plainly, the very first phrase in the very first verse, Matthew 4 and verse 12, Jesus got word that John had been arrested. It is dangerous to tell the truth. His own cousin. Now this is personal. And John's behind bars, not because he broke any law or anything like that, but because he told the truth. Shortly before this, Herod had visited his half-brother, and while he was visiting his brother, he decided he liked his brother's wife a whole lot. And Herod, who does whatever Herod wants to do, goes back home, divorces his wife, marries the brother's wife, and, and John speaks up and says, no. You may think you're above the law, but you're not above God's law. There's a higher government than you. And so Herod throws John in jail to shut him up. So what does Jesus do seeing what just happened to his cousin? I mean, if I were advising Jesus at this point, I'd be going, um, Jesus, maybe now is not the best time to go public. You've just come out of the wilderness. Nobody's expecting public yet. I would just lie low a little bit. Let this blow over. And you definitely don't want to preach the same message John did. But Matthew 4, verse 17, when Jesus got word that John had been arrested, he returned to Galilee and he started preaching, he picked up right where John left off, change your life, God's kingdom is here. 
It's the exact message John had just brought. And verse 23, which is where we'll really spend our time tonight, God's kingdom was his theme, that beginning right now, they were under God's government, a good government. He also healed people of their diseases and of the bad effects of their bad lives. What a difference it is to be under God's good government. Under Herod's government, they arrest a prophet like John and they put him in jail. Under God's good government, Jesus calls John the greatest person who's ever lived and he continues his message. Under Herod's government, they tax you until you don't have enough money to buy medicine for your loved one. Jesus heals for free. Under Herod's government, Herod does whatever he wants. The laws apply to everybody else, but not to him. In God's good government, whatever we see Jesus do, we can do and should do. Jesus says, I haven't come to get rid of God's law. I've come to fulfill it. So the difference between these two governments is like night and day. And that's why the prophet Isaiah just saw it in the spirit and described it this way. People sitting in that dark, dark country of death watched the sun come up. So when Jesus announces to the people, beginning right now, you're under God's government, God's good government, it is the best news they've ever heard. But what exactly does that mean? Jesus says, change your life, God's good government is here. What does that mean? How, do, how would you and I change? What does it look like or feel like to be under God's government? I asked myself that this week and I really struggled. How would I explain this to a friend? Can I get it clear enough that like a fourth grade friend could understand what I think Jesus was trying to say? Because this really matters for you and me. It matters very much because how we answer this and how different Christians have answered this over the years makes a big difference in how you try to live the Christian life. It looks very different depending on how you answer what God's good government is and what kind of change is necessary for us since that's true. All right, so maybe, maybe the question to help us clarify it would be this one. When Jesus preaches, change your life, beginning right now, you're under God's good government. Is he talking about something that's all or mostly spiritual? All or mostly physical? Both or neither? Well, let's look at the options. Many American Christians would say, uh, would answer spiritual. God's government is heaven. It's called heaven. And if they picture it at all, it's in the sky. Or, I don't know, if you had a mental conception of heaven, it's maybe, I mean, the cartoonists do angels and people with harps sitting on clouds. But you kind of picture it like out beyond Pluto or something like that. And it's not so much now, it's someday. It's someday when we die, we go to heaven. Or it's someday when Jesus returns, uh, we all will be in heaven. Now, if we view God's good government primarily as far away, or someday, how motivated will you or I be to invest in this world, in the people of this world? Will we spend years learning music, or medicine, or programming, or the trades? probably will hunker down in church and hold on. 
and probably all of you are familiar with Christian movements who have basically seen God's good government this way and have therefore responded, I would say, very consistently. Okay, now Jesus corrects this view when the Pharisees come to him and go ask him this question, when will the kingdom of God come? Jesus says, the kingdom of God's already among you. So therefore, it's not just someday. In Jesus, it's already here. Jesus says, beginning right now, you're under God's good government. And there seems to be some kind of physical dimension that's related to here on earth. The Christians in Revelation say, you have made us kings and priests of our God and we shall reign on the earth. And at the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples, because you've been with me in my trials, my Father's granted me a kingdom, and I grant you the right to sit at thrones in this new kingdom, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a governance. It sounds very, I don't know, to me, physical. Now, the spiritual view gets some important things right in my mind. The most important being, Jesus says to enter God's kingdom, you gotta be born one more time by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, the kingdom is not enterable. All right. Now, other Christians say, no, actually, God's good government is all or mostly uh, physical, like slash political. Most of Jesus' disciples actually thought this, which is why some of them come up and ask ask Jesus with some cheek, when you come into power, Would it be okay if I have one of the top cabinet-level positions? Because you know I'm going to be better than these other 10 stiffs that I'm stuck with. Right, okay. Herod definitely hears whatever John and Jesus are saying and says, they're thinking political. The uh, early Jewish historian Josephus tells us another reason why Herod arrested John. Yes, because of the divorce thing, but it's also because John was attracting huge crowds and was very popular. And Herod was scared of him. He's like, this dude could like tell these followers who love him to start a rebellion and they would do it. So he arrests him. And Jesus, sure enough, same thing. When Jesus starts attracting people like John did, Herod starts plotting how to kill him. People come to Jesus and say, get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. Jesus says, well, you can tell that fox, I'm busy. And as he makes crystal clear, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. So, even though though, that Jesus clearly says my kingdom's not of this world, and not like his disciples thought, not like Herod thought, this has not stopped Christians, quite a few over the years, from trying to combine religious power with political or military power. The Spanish conquistadores did that. So did many of the Puritans who settled New England. You want to end up in the stocks? Well, do something related to the wrong Sabbath observance or whatever. Some of the folks who attacked our capital on January 6th were thinking this. They were trying to do this. And can I tell you, it never goes well. No, so when Jesus preaches the kingdom, he does not say to everybody, overthrow Herod, God's good government is here. He says, change your life, God's good government is here. 
So if God's kingdom is not 100% spiritual in certain sense, neither is it all 100% physical political in a certain sense. But we do have to say God's good government challenges every political power. And here's why. How many people can sit on a throne? One. And so if, if we start saying God is king, God is on the throne, guess what? All those other leaders get very, very nervous. Now, we can owe them respect. We can say, well, yeah, you're king, but you're a limited king. You report to the king of kings. So what does this, what does this mean? Uh, well, it means Herod's not king. Putin's not king. General Secretary Xi is not king. They have a limited power. But ultimately, the person who's ultimately king over them, they have to answer to, and he does not like people being trampled. He has already created them with meaning, value, and dignity. I, I saw uh, something, maybe you've seen this, called the Human Freedom Index. Have any of you seen this? Yeah. And it measures every country in the world by like 82 sub-factors and 12 major areas and ranks them all in quadrants. And it includes, of course, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom to move around, all these kinds of different things. And as I read through the latest list, I noticed something. In the top 10 countries for human freedom in the world, which would include, doesn't include the US, Switzerland, Ireland, Australia, countries like that, Every one of those top 10 countries has a history that was heavily influenced by Christianity. Then you go to the opposite end of the list, the bottom of the list, and eight of the 10 countries had a heavy influence in their history or currently from Islam. And now my point is not to bash Islam. Uh, what, I, what I am saying is there is an undeniable connection between Christianity, which holds the principles of God's good government, and good government. People flourish. They're economically more prosperous. They're more free. They're able to study, all those kinds of things. And it's because Christianity's good government challenges every human government. So Christians will try to take over the government we try to influence every government for the benefit of everybody, especially the vulnerable. All right, so now where does this leave us? We've been on a long journey. Is God's kingdom spiritual or physical? Kinda, kinda. Is it both? Is it neither? I think the best way I could maybe try to answer it is with a story. A friend of Karen and mine, uh, Jeremy, is a Brit, through and through. One year, he invited Karen and me and other friends over to his house on July 5th for a British revenge party. <laughs> and we all played cricket and drank tea and ale. It was a jolly good time. And uh, anyway, Jeremy uh, married an American. And they have three children. And Jeremy was traveling a lot for his work. And, and he wondered, gosh, if I'm not a US citizen and this plane goes down, where does that leave my kids? Like, like, how does U.S. tax law handle things for me? Well, I don't know what it was like at his time. I looked it up this week myself. If you're a U.S. citizen, the first 12 or $13 million of your estate is exempt from estate tax. Well, guess what? Very few Americans have an estate larger than that. 
So very, very few Americans actually pay estate tax. There are other taxes they figure out, but not estate taxes. Now, if as a non-citizen though, non-citizen in his case, only the first $60,000 of the estate is exempt. And then the taxes start. And so what would be left for his kids would be pitiful and, and really little. So somewhat begrudgingly, Jeremy studied for the US citizenship exam, which asked questions like, how many amendments does the Constitution have? Which probably most of our citizens can't answer. I didn't know the answer. Somebody know? 27. 27. Wow, Daria, you get the first uh, prize for that. Yeah. All right, well, finally the day came for Jeremy to be sworn in as a new US citizen. So he went to the place, the room is just packed with people dressed in their best dress from their home countries and the whole families are there and everybody is like so excited. It's like, he said, I'm looking around and I realize it's the biggest day of their lives. And I'm like, how soon before I can get back to work? You know? <laughs> and so then they asked every person there becoming a citizen to raise their right hand and say the oath, take the oath of allegiance which starts like this. I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. Jeremy's picturing Queen Elizabeth in his head and he's going, oh, I can't renounce her. She can renounce me. But he did it. To become a citizen of a new country, he renounced the old one. He renounced his allegiance to the old. Well, friends, if you and I want to live under God's good government, we've got to renounce our old allegiances to anything or anyone who competes with God for our utmost absolute obedience and devotion. Anything else that rules us which is why Jesus doesn't just preach God's kingdom is here. He preaches, change your life. God's kingdom is here. Apparently, you and I have in our lives things that are, we are under the power of. And they can be more tyrannical to us than Herod. Over the years, I have, for example, I have fairly often felt anxiety about money. Karen will tell you that one time when we bought a house, I was a complete mess. I was rude to the realtor. I was just all over the place. I was, yes, we should do it. No, I wanted to back out. And it was all really anxiety about money. And so, but when I go to and, and see what Jesus wants to tell me about money, yes, there are comforting words. God takes care of the birds. He'll take care of you. But right away, right up front, you cannot serve both God and, capital M, money. Apparently, a lot of what was driving my anxious and unproductive responses, which I didn't know, was I had an allegiance to money, to the security that it gives, the independence that it gives, the comfort that it gives, the I have my act together, why can't you? All of that that comes with money. And when I renounce that allegiance and come under God's good government, I find out, you know what? It's a whole lot better. It's a whole lot better. I go to Lincoln Marsh. I see the birds. I go, wow, Lord, you're taking care of them. 
you got me. I feel more relaxed. I can be more generous. I become more grateful. God's government is so much better than the old government run by money that I was suffering under. So is the kingdom of God spiritual or physical? I would say total. God created both the invisible and the visible and he rules both and he will ultimately rule in its entirety and visibly all. And what is at the core of God's kingdom is allegiance. For us to be under God's good government, there's gotta be some switching of allegiances. Dallas Willard nailed it when he said, the kingdom of God is wherever what God wants done is done. Every person, every church, every community, every country. But Jesus says, change your life. Start with what you can work on. And then, then we can work out from there. So here's what I would encourage us to do. Next time you're praying the Lord's Prayer on your own and you get to the phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, notice they're connected, on earth as it is in heaven, just pause. Because this prayer means, Lord, help me switch my allegiance from the stuff that's not you to you. So when you pause, you might wonder, what, what am I under the rule of? What is it that I, I feel I could just not live without? What situation am I trying to control? Why am I trying to control that? What am I obsessing about? Maybe that's a giveaway of an allegiance that you have. A friend of mine gave me the four Ps, which I wrote in my journal, and I go back to sometimes. Am I pushing, performing, presuming, or pretending? That's usually a giveaway of something going on in me, usually an allegiance to approval or something like that. Okay. And when I have gradually, year by year, and to the best of my ability, and you know, spiritual growth is, <laughs> has its ups and downs, right? We circle around the wilderness and all that. But it is a beautiful thing to be under God's good government and not the old. Uh, and then as I break free from the old tyrannies, I'm more free to help somebody else. I can listen better to them. I can care about their situation more deeply. I can do whatever I can to try to help them. Maybe protest. Maybe, I don't know, send them a gift card. I, it just varies situation to situation. But friends, why would you or I want to live one more day under the tyrannical rule of all these other powers? when we can live under God's good government. Jesus says it's here, it's open, change your life, switch the allegiances, and the time is now because Christ will come again in power and great glory to judge the world. And then every knee will bow, some gladly, some unwillingly, but it's too late. And then those who are ready, may it be me, may it be all of us, we'll join in Handel's chorus and sing, <laughs> the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Amen.